Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm here today with Madeline Davies, our Features Editor. On this week's podcast, we're talking about the diaries of an RAF chaplain during the Battle of Britain, and also about some of the other things that have been in the paper this week, including the Pope's latest apostolic exhortation. If you don't already subscribe to the paper, you can try 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. First, from February 1940 to the end of 1941, the Reverend Guy Mayfield served as the station chaplain at RAF Duxford, living and working alongside fighter pilots engaged in the Battle of Britain. In blue RAF-issued notebooks, he kept a detailed diary, which has been transcribed by his son Pierce, and is published this month by the Imperial War Museum. It includes stories of dancing, hangovers, and singing the Internationale at 1500 feet, alongside accounts of missing planes, funerals, and letters to bereaved relatives. We've published some very powerful and memorable extracts of the diaries in this week's paper. Madeline, can you tell us a bit about the background to this, how, how you came across these diaries? So I heard that the Imperial War Museum was going to publish this book, Life and Death in the Battle of Britain, and that it was made up of the diary of Reverend Guy Mayfield. Um, I then discovered that he, as well as being an ordained priest, was actually a journalist. So he wrote for a newspaper which is no longer with us called The Guardian. Uh, which is an Anglican newspaper alongside the Church Times. So actually his diaries read really beautifully because as well as being a priest, he was a very practised and accomplished writer. The diaries are a window into ministry in really very extreme circumstances. Yes, so he arrives as um, the war is underway and these pilots, many of them very young, so sort of 1920, were preparing, doing lots of sort of practice runs, but preparing to engage in the Battle of Britain. And he sort of arrives in this springtime where he's very aware that a lot of these young men won't be coming back. So it's a really extraordinary account of how do you counsel and minister to these young men who really, you know, barely into adulthood, who are contemplating dying. And I mean, alongside the extracts from the actual diary, we've also published um, some reflections that he's written today, looking back. Is that right? Yes, so there are sections which are in italics. Um, Guy Mayfield's no longer with us, but when he was going through his notebooks um, before he died, he wrote um, these reflections um, where he was kind of looking back and with hindsight adding a bit more detail and things which sort of had occurred to him looking back. Um, and as I say, his son Piers has now um, written up everything um, and, and they've published it. But it, it's really interesting kind of reading the italicised sections where he's able to look back and think, gosh, you know, looking back, um, this, this is kind of how I feel about it now. I mean, one of the extracts from 23rd of February 1940, he, he takes the funeral of, of P.O. Delamere of 222 Squadron. Um, and then this is followed by what he calls a rowdy dance um, with, with lots of beer being drunk. And he, he goes along to that. But then it sounds like after that, he then has a very deep, profound conversation with Peter Watson. I guess a lot of the diary entries are characterised by a contrast between what's really a, a kind of really boisterous life on the RAF base where there's lots of drinking, there's lots of dancing with young women who are also involved in the war effort. Um, and there's loads of really dangerous flying. So he talks about even before the Battle of Britain, a lot of these pilots were really young and they were doing really dangerous manoeuvres and he really worries about that. And he also really takes it upon himself to be normal and I kind of guess one of the lads. He's really concerned not to be what he sort of describes as kind of 
prim parson figure so he enjoys arriving and ordering a gin rather than a lime juice which shocks and I think impresses people Um, and there's this great phrase where he talks about how beer brings out the theological instincts of the English so there's often occasions where there's a really rowdy dance and then later people are coming out to his rooms and kind of unburdening themselves and asking really profound questions about life and death so he's kind of swinging constantly between nursing people's hangovers and then trying to talk to them about does heaven exist and can I be afraid of dying and it's, it's really dramatic. He talks about how, how it's good to talk about the things which we keep concealed for the most part beneath the surface so it seems to show that the, the chaplain played this crucial role in, in allowing these men to talk about the meaning of life and, and death which was really going to come quite soon for many of them. Definitely. And many of these conversations don't really happen in church. So although he holds church services, he holds funerals, they're also sort of very ceremonial services, which he doesn't really enjoy. But actually, it's often after a few beers, um, or going for walks or going for a swim or even up in the air that that these conversations actually take place. And um, he forms really close relationships with a few of these um, young men who do want to have these kind of philosophical questions. And then is really quite traumatised when those young men don't return and he has to hold funerals or or write to relatives. You know, he gets to know their fiancés or their parents um, and ends up sort of having to, to break the bad news to people as well. Mm-hmm. That comes out in the 9th of April 1940 entry when Germany has invaded Norway and Denmark. So it becomes clear that fighting is going to start and, and not all of these young men will return. Yeah and and I think he used the diary to unburden himself as well because Mm. he talks several times about how as the chaplain he can't show his own Mm. grief he has to be the strong person and the smiling person the person propping up the bar and so I get the impression that he really used this diary um, to kind of externally process what he was feeling and he says you know I'll miss them when they go down of course as a Christian I should say this doesn't matter the real life starts when it ends and that's true but how dreadful to die before finding out how much better life is at 30 than it was at 22 or how happy marriage can be and so he kind of really struggles between what he knows he believes in his heart and the emotions of grieving for people. And that sense before they go out to battle, he writes, how many will come back? Which ones? All one's prayers can't keep them in the sky. Very moving. Yeah, there's a, there's a really um, important passage at the end of the books where he says, much of my prayers must be a safety valve. And if God is pity or mercy, why shouldn't they be? And so he sort of comes to the conclusion that it's okay to, to pray these prayers just for simple for protection for him to watch over these pilots and that you can combine that with a really strong faith in heaven and the afterlife and it's okay just to send those prayers up as well. And it's very moving when his um, pilot officer Peter Watson he's become very close to um, he hasn't returned and it's kind of unclear what's happened to him. He was spotted parachuting down. Um, having yeah. been shot down um, and then his family still seems to be holding on to some hope that he may be alive but it's, it's clear to Guy Mayfield that he probably isn't so he has to he has to navigate that pastorally. Yeah it, it's quite a long diary and so I had to make a decision about what I was going to draw out and I decided to focus on the relationship between these two because it was typical in some ways of the the friendships that he formed and this character Peter Watson really comes to life he's only 20 he's from Yorkshire um, and he's really straight talking and he's quite kind of cheeky and he's also one of these people who does these daredevil maneuvers and there's an occasion where um, you know he has to stop him standing on his head I think and um, cure him of a hangover Um, 
but also has these really in-depth conversations about life and death and as it says sort of how do you live if you're going to be dead by the end of the summer and he still reflects on Peter um, much later um, in the diary after Peter's died and on how much he taught him how much he misses him what he taught him about ministry really and also about life and then later on in the extracts, that real sense of, of the pressure that Guy Mayfield's under is all one's work is giving out. There's little chance for anything to come in in return. Because I don't analyse my own reactions to events critically enough. It's a pity it would help if I could. But I guess these diaries are an opportunity for him to reflect critically on. Yeah, I mean, he talks about um, letting the light in and my own darkness out. Um, he talks about what he's learned about how you... I guess evangelise or share the faith. Um, he talks about presenting Christianity as essentially a matter for reasoning faith and he really enjoys those kind of quite muscular conversations with these young men who are really trying to work out, can I believe this stuff? And I guess one of the reasons I wanted to publish it is that I feel that it's so relevant to clergy today and perhaps we're not in a wartime situation but there'll be so many readers who've also had to counsel um, people who are facing death maybe much earlier than they expected, having those really difficult conversations and struggling with probably their own grief and, you know, how do you process that? And hopefully it's kind of takes some encouragement from, from somebody that lived through such an extraordinary period um, but was still, I think, able to offer so much solace to, to young men. Next, holiness is not about swooning in mystic rapture, but develops through small gestures and should leave Christians in a state of healthy unease. A new letter from the Pope says, and it's Pope Francis's third apostolic exhortation. It was published by the Vatican on Monday. Madeline, you've been, you've read the exhortation, I think, and have done a story in this week's paper. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this, and I've noticed that um, quite a few bishops in the C of E have noted it as well. I know the Bishop of Leicester has encouraged um, everyone in his diocese to read it. It's, I think, a really encouraging letter, and it's full of really practical kind of everyday examples, which I guess people have come to expect from this Pope. So he gives a lot of really ordinary examples of people who are working towards holiness so he talks about the woman who's going out shopping and she bumps into her neighbour and they start gossiping and the woman decides to pull back from that to not do it um, then she goes home and she feels really anxious so she prays a rosary so I think he's trying to give really kind of achievable and ordinary examples of the small gestures that can make us more holy alongside that he does draw on these amazing examples of saints throughout the ages and he does warn against mediocrity and um, presents quite a radical vision as well alongside these very ordinary examples of of how we should practice holiness in our everyday lives he writes of, of those for whom christianity becomes a sort of ngo stripped of the luminous mysticism so evident in the lives of these various saints. And, and you write the echoes of the warning by the Archbishop of Canterbury about the church not becoming a rotary club with a pointy roof. So, I mean, do you think some of their private conversations have perhaps influenced Pope Francis? I think both churches are grappling with this question of the church and politics and social reform, and both coming under some criticism from some quarters, um, implying that the church should stay out of politics, um, that it's not the... A primary role of the church to agitate for social change um, and he really takes on those critics um, by saying that there is a gospel imperative to um, 
achieve justice not just through helping individuals but by working for social change um, on a much more structural level but he does also warn of those who kind of separate that from the gospel from their personal relationship with God and would have the church um, basically just be an NGO um, without God so it's kind of one of many examples in the piece where he's drawing out two erroneous paths and trying to show where the right way is so there are extremes at two ends which he's encouraging people to avoid. Do you have a sense of how this has been received in the Roman Catholic Church? I've seen a lot of really positive um, celebrations and I really liked what one um, tweeting nun said where she said it's best not to read it with delight because he's calling out your ideological enemies or pulling out the few bits that you disagree with. Um, It's better just to read it and and pray to become more holy, which I really like because I think there is a temptation for people to immediately search for the bits that they don't like or, as she says, to try and think, oh, I wonder who he's criticising in this passage because he does tend to use phrases like some Christians and... (laughs) Um, some people and some groups and you know you're immediately tempted to think oh is he talking about this person is he talking about that person and and some people have have gone down that line of inquiry online I think some people would also see it as perhaps a remonstration with some of his more conservative critics and some people were a bit unhappy with how much he talks about kind of the dangers of just seeking silence as an alternative to action and so it does celebrate prayer and the contemplative life but he seems to see that there could be a danger there in that you could kind of lock yourself away from the world and avoid engaging in society so there's a bit of a tension there and I think some people have been a bit concerned that it's too negative about those who have dedicated their lives to contemplation. And if people want to read this where where is it available on the Vatican website? Yes, it's um, available to download in English um, and there are also many summaries that have been published so um, we've got a summary online um, and I know that people have also shared um, the one by the Vatican and also the National Catholic Register. Let's just have a look at what else is in this week's paper. One of our comment pieces is very timely. It's by His Excellency Guy Hewitt, who's the High Commissioner for Barbados to the United Kingdom and also an Anglican priest in the Diocese of Barbados. He's talking about the situation of Caribbean migrants who came to Britain in the 1950s and 60s to fill a lot of skills shortages and, and to work in various jobs here. Guy Hewitt says that what's happened is that many of these long-term and now quite elderly UK residents are undocumented. This is because many of them left the Caribbean as British subjects when their islands were still British colonies, and so they perceived themselves to be British. And they, they've secured leave to remain since they arrived here, so it never occurred to them they're not legally British. Now these people are actually being treated as illegal immigrants, so they're barred from working, they refused access to government services such as the NHS, and a lot of them are losing their welfare and housing benefits. Um, and, and he's saying this is really not good enough, we need to treat them with some humanity. These are people who actually contributed immensely to this country and to all intents and purposes are British and certainly regard themselves as British. Um, This has been picked up quite a lot in the media, it's been on Channel 4 News, Gary Young writes about it in The Guardian today as we record on Friday, Um, there's a piece in The Independent, so it's it's a very timely piece and it does seem there's a concerted campaign by Caribbean diplomats and, and others to really rectify what is seen as quite a grave injustice. I went to see um, a young family in Wiltshire um, earlier this year, the Bryants. Um, so that's Chantelle and her husband, Christopher, who is um, the rector of a benefice there, and their son, Jonathan, who's an amazing young man who was born with cerebral palsy. Um, and the, the Bryans were basically warned that um, he would be severely disabled and possibly unable even to recognise them. Um, and it's a story of, of really how they unlocked him. 
which is how Chantal describes it, um, she managed to develop um, a system where by pointing with his eyes to letters, he could spell out communication. And not only has he done that, he's gone on to write poetry um, using this method um, and prose. And actually, his first book is going to be published in July. So um, just wanted to flag up my interview with the family. It's quite a slow method of communication. So we we spent some time with these words being spelled out, but um, really amazing what emerges. Um, And he talks a lot in the book about um, basically being released through this method and being enabled as well to talk about his faith. And it's really striking how in many of the interviews in other newspapers, um, he's talked about Jesus, he's talked about his Mm. faith. And I know the family would be um, really keen for people to look at his writing on his blog as well. It's called ICanTalk.net. Well, it's just to flag up that Margaret Holness, who was our education correspondent for 27 years, was presented with an award by the Archbishop of Canterbury last Friday. Uh, the Canterbury Cross for Services to the Church of England for Sustained Excellence as our Education Correspondent. There's a report about that on page 16 of the news section. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.